Good evening, Grace Church. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 will be the text for this evening. So thankful that you've decided to come out, and thank you that you've prayed for me. Uh, pray your hearts are really encouraged this evening. Romans chapter 8, as my brother shared, this is the last and final sermon of Romans eight series that we're, some of us men were able to walk through this year, and this will be the final, beginning of verse 28, we'll read uh, through the end of the chapter, and I'm using the New American Standard Bible, and we know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, to those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus Our Lord, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Join with me as we pray. Father, thank you again for your word. The power is in the word, not in the man. So come in the Holy Spirit's power. Be gracious to us. Open our ears to hear and our eyes to see your truth. And transform us with the magnificent love that only you can provide for us in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Well, this evening I intend to aim at your heart with the rifle scope of God's word, placing the crosshairs of Romans 8 dead center on your chest and penetrate you with the striking bullets of God's love to such a degree that you feel the piercing passion of his affection for you. And that you would be moved to value God more highly and fervently than you did before you walked in tonight. That you leave motivated to press on through sufferings in light of the conquest which has already been secured for us in Christ Jesus. I know that's a lot, but the main goal, the main purpose tonight we want to see from Romans 8 is to see God's providence in his purposes and provisions For us that demonstrate a perpetual binding love that grants us complete 
victory over sin and death in Christ Jesus. To do a quick recap over chapter 8, what our brothers walked us through, beginning with Jeff earlier this year. I just want to briefly make points from those those verses. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, we see that we have deliverance from the bondage of the law and God's declaration of no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Corey showed us in verses 9 through 17, we have genuine life only by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit which manifests itself in us walking according to the Spirit and not the flesh. And this Spirit-filled life reveals that we are true sons of God to whom we cry, Abba, Father. Chris encouraged us, verses 18 through 27, that the hope of glory is Christ in you. And this is our own glory that awaits us as we travel this pilgrim road of suffering. And tonight, we aim to see the love of God that so transforms and compels us to believe that he is for us, which in turn empowers us to press on to the end. So again, two main points. Number one, God's providence in his purposes, verses 28 through 30. And number two, God's provision in his perpetual love. Verse 28 is one of the most common verses in modern day for Christians. It's such an encouragement to know that for those who love God, God calls us all things to work together for our good. ESV says that we know that those who love God, all things work together for good. The focus is for those who love God. So for those who do not love God, God does not work in the same way to cause all things to be for your good as he does for those who do love God, i.e. the people of God, his church. And there's nothing too big too small that God is not using in your life to be for your good and his glory. Whether it's your job, your spouse, your kids, your financial situation, your health, whatever lay on the table, it flows directly from God's providential hand over your life. Nothing is simply happenstance. God sovereignly acts in time and space to be intimately involved in your life. He orchestrates and lovingly influences every moment of our existence. Our whole salvation is bound up in God's good, loving purposes that works out again for our good and his glory. Some of you may ask, how are all things working together for my good? You may say, Hunter, I love God. I spend time daily communing with him. I'm in his word. I'm on my face seeking this God. And yet, when I look around me, When I look at my life and the circumstances, rarely would I describe it as good. (laughs) Rather, it's more depressing and discouraging when I take a look at everything in my life. Well, remember the story of Joseph in Genesis. I know many of you do, the way his brothers treated him and how he was thrown into a pit and sold into slavery and thrown into jail and all these things could have easily distracted him. Yet his heart was not fixed on his circumstances, but on the certainty of the purposes of a sovereign God. Recall what he says in Genesis 50, 20, when that dramatic encounter with his brothers is enfolded out for us, and he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And so his eyes were fixed on the sovereign God, not on his circumstances. So how can we see our good and God's glory in the midst of a sin-filled, sin-torn world? Well, you won't find it in self-help books or the purpose-driven life. You find it in the God who is sovereign. 
a good and the one who has promised to you that his purposes are not in vain. But they're at work in you to produce a joy and satisfaction in him. Our lives are in the hands of a good, loving father who is trustworthy. And his providence is sufficient for all of our wants. He's called us on purpose to enjoy his goodness. It's not by accident, brothers and sisters. It's by his sovereign design. And this God is the one who foreknew us, says that for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30, and these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. What a beautiful progression of propositions. And has been titled, or has been called, a chain of salvation, an indestructible chain of our secured salvation. But you may notice you don't see such things such as he sanctified us or he adopted us or he regenerated us. And that's okay. The purpose is that these are great concepts of our redemption that is accomplished and applied by the Godhead. And Paul wanted his readers and us to know that God purposed each link in this chain from first to last, from foreknowing to glorifying What was the purpose? Conformity to the imago Christi, the image of Christ. This is God's determination in all of his decrees and sovereign involvement in our life is to conform us to Jesus, make us like him. The purpose of our salvation is the purpose of him making us and creating us so that we would reflect his image to the world. And yet, we ruin that with the fall. And so God And his work in redemption is to restore us the broken image, the broken imago Dei that's in us back to the true image, the perfect image which is fully seen in his son. So his restoration is seen in this glorious chain. And the amazing hope is that if God has foreknown you, predestined you, called you, justified you, you can guarantee he's going to glorify you. He will make it happen. And though glorified is a future event in the Christian experience, Paul includes it here as an action already occurred. Probably because in God's view, he already sees the end from the beginning. He knows that those whom he foreknows, he is going to cause to persevere so that they will be glorified. He's confident that he will complete your salvation and he wants you to have the same confidence. What great joy to know that God achieves our full salvation from first to last. He doesn't start off well and then trail off towards the end and fall behind like some of us may do when we run a marathon or we prepare for it. No, he's not like that. He doesn't give up on us when we fall short of him and when we can't keep up and we can't do the things that we know we ought to do. He doesn't get frustrated with us and just leave us. He's faithful to complete what he begins. And this is good news for us, church. Did you notice who the active agent is in these verses? He predestined. He foreknew. He justified. He glorified. He, these verbs are third person verbs referring to God. He is the active agent who has taken the intentional activity and undergoing to display this love to us. We've seen God's providence and his purposes. 
Moving on, let's look at God's provision and his perpetual love. This is God's great declaration that we are right before him and that he is not our enemy, but our advocate. Verse 31, well, what then shall we say to these things? What are some of these things? Is the question. Well, some of these things, but not all of them are verse one, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Verse three, God condemns sin in the flesh of his son rather than in us. Verse six, there's life and peace for the mind set on the spirit. Verse six, nine through 11, there's indwelling of the spirit of Christ who raises us from the dead. Verses 14 through 17, we are sons of God adopted by the father, co-heirs with Christ. Verse 18, there's a glory awaiting us that surpasses every suffering that we encounter. Verse 24 through 25, we have a hope that empowers perseverance to the end. In verse 26 through 27, we have the help of the Spirit in prayer because we're too weak. So based on all these things and so much more, if this God is for us, who can really be against us? May we join the psalmist in Psalm 118, verse 6, who said, The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So can we have confidence that God is for us, despite how difficult our life is and how depressing things appear? Yes, indeed. And if these reasons aren't enough to convince you, then keep reading in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. Oh, Christian, if there was anything that God could do to get your attention, to shock you into an appreciation for who he is and of his love, this is it. Look at the cross, the death of his only unique son. This is indeed the greatest expression of his love for his people. The clearest example, the culminated manifestation that he loves you. And if God did not spare his own son, that means he did spare you. In order for God to spare you and me, Christ could not be spared. He had to be killed. Someone had to die for divine satisfaction against sin. Christ graciously chose to take our guilt and iniquities upon himself. Rather than us rightfully suffering the judgment of our own. Sin. Romans 4.25, he was delivered over because of our transgressions. Do you see the love of God? Do you see it in 1 John 4, 9 through 10? By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you see his love in Romans 5, 8, where he demonstrates his own love? By sending his son, by Christ dying for us. So I ask you, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Verse 33. God is the one who justifies. It does us good to continually stir one another by way of reminder, as Peter tells us. So I ask, whose throne is in the heavens and does whatever he pleases? Now if the judge of all the earth who only always does right has no charge to place on you and has declared you not guilty 
by virtue of the sinless life, substitutionary death, and glorious resurrection of his son, what else is necessary to convince us of our standing with him? There is no throne higher than El Elyon, the utmost high God. No one can veto God's declaration over you of justified, vindicated, acquitted, pardoned, forgiven of all sin. Are there attempts to cause us to doubt God's love and to doubt this ruling over us? Yes, we do have an enemy who stands to accuse us, but take heart, this ruling is irreversible. It cannot be removed or revoked. You hear the judicial language in these verses. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Hear this Old Testament counterpart from Isaiah in the context where God helps his servant who is Jesus. In Isaiah 50, verse 7 through 10, it says, For the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I'm not disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Hear that language? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. Picture Jesus saying these words to his father. So we see in Isaiah a picture of God vindicating his servant who is Christ. And he procures justice for him amid those who aim at condemning him. And this justice, the same justice that God granted to his servant, Jesus, now applies to those who have hope in the risen Savior. I don't know if you're aware of this image, this, this chapter in Zechariah chapter 3. He's given a, a vision from an angel. And it says, verses 1 through 5, that he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, See, I've taken your iniquity away from you. And will clothe you with feastal robes. Oh beloved. Do you hear the Lord saying on your behalf to Satan. Who loves to accuse you. The Lord rebuke you Satan. Indeed the Lord who has chosen Charles. The Lord who has chosen Brian. The Lord who has chosen Dan. The Lord who has chosen Asha. The Lord rebuke you. Are these not brands plucked from the fire? What has God done to prove that you're his? Just as Joshua's filthy garments were removed from him so that he could be clothed with feastal robes, your filthy, corrupted, sin-stained garments have been removed and placed on Christ, on the cross. Where your iniquity was allotted to him rather than you. And in exchange, Christ clothes you. He absorbs you with his impeccable righteousness. The only garments that are accepted in the great banquet feast. Do you see his love? God has undergone infinite measures to secure our position before him. And our inheritance with him. What then ought to be our response to God's great power and love exhibited towards us? Shall we still doubt? Shall we question his love? Shall we remain in unbelief and distrust? 
God is for us, which is clearly seen in our text alone, much less the whole letter of Romans. If he's done all these things and purposed it to come to fruition, who then can really be against us? What do we have to fret if this God is working all things for our good? Surely these things warrant in us an assurance that God loves us and he's for us. And yet God knew that his people would be tried from every side. Flaming arrows shot, injuries inflicted, saints deeply wounded. This is why he gives us tokens of his love in the midst of war. He knew you would ask, does God hold any charge against my past? Answer, God is the one who justifies. He knows you're prone to say things such as, surely I'm condemned for what I've done. To which he reminds you, Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And yet still, he knew you would doubt his love. And say, oh, my sin is so deplorable. Are you sure my sin cannot separate me from the love of Christ? To which Paul answers, verse 35 through 39. With tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just, in, it, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, verse 37. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loves us. This is the will of God, church, that he prescribes for his people to persevere to the end. He's designed it this way. That may not be how we would do it if we had our choice. But God's ways are higher than ours. They're wiser than ours. They're more loving than ours. And he has purposed it in all that he does. One thing, verse 29 conformity to his son. This is seen beautifully in the way the saints suffer as they follow the lamb wherever he goes. And this is God's love manifested to even greater degrees. He allows us participation in the suffering so that we also partake in his eschatological conquering over his enemies. Paul's no, Paul knows that this list in verse 35 is is, is, causes us to naturally doubt God's love. They're uncomfortable settings. They're unpreferred situations. Again, none of us would sign up for this kind of life if we had our choice. We're actually told to avoid these things at all costs, but the Bible consistently describes Christians as those who encounter these realities as a normal effect of following Jesus. Yet he guarantees us comfort during these trials. With what are we comforted with? His unfluctuating love. Thomas Brooks' precious remedies, he says, Satan's vice is this, to say, surely if God's love is towards thee, if his soul did delight and take pleasure in thee, he would not deal thus with thee. Oh, if God was for you and loved you, he wouldn't allow these things to happen, believer. He wouldn't allow you to be inflicted with a terminal illness that would affect you the rest of your life. He wouldn't allow your child to die at a young age. He wouldn't allow you to have cancer. He wouldn't allow you to lose your job, to go hungry, to have no money in the bank. If he loved you, he definitely would not cause you to suffer like this. You recall our Savior in Matthew 27. 43, as he was hanging on the cross and the crowds were mocking him, despising him. They said very similar things. They said, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. See, Satan loves to question God's love for you. 
He causes you to consider your surroundings more than the Savior. And he causes you to doubt his love because of painful circumstances. But Paul says that these are actually demonstrations of God's love because they put us in situations where we're forced to loosen our grip on this world and cling to the God who is our only hope and deliverer. And when we do that, we will overwhelmingly conquer the daily battles that threaten our faith. So I ask, are you willing to follow the Lamb wherever He goes? As Revelation describes those who overcome and belong to Him, will you follow Him, believer, through distress, persecution, famine? Will you follow Him through nakedness, peril, sword, knowing that doing so is discomfortable, uncomfortable, it's difficult, yet it leads you to victory in Christ? Peter Stolmacher in his brief commentary on this book says these outward vices they threaten believers in different ways but they are nevertheless inferior to the love of God which has been established in Christ Jesus Paul goes on to say in verse 37 we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us this word means to prevail completely to have complete victory So Paul's unrelenting confidence in the believer's conquering does not rest in his power to overcome, but in Christ's power to overcome. And he has overcome. And by union with him, we also overcome. And we have the victory. Oh, the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, there is a love that can only flow from God. It's as strong as many waters. And you were tethered to God's love to the degree that his love for his son is infinite and eternal. Because God can never not love his son. You can never not be attached to him through union with Christ. The scripture is some of the most comforting words ever to be penned by the apostle Paul. Oh, the unchanging love. It is unending. It is permanent towards his own Romans 8 teaches that we have great assurance and reason to persevere to the end because we overcome all the sufferings of this life. And Christ has done all that's necessary to secure our salvation and to keep us in his immutable, unchanging love. Nothing can break the power of God's omnipotent affection for you. Do you hear that? And do you believe that tonight? Nothing can break the power of God omnipotent affection neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor height nor depth nor think sorry nor things to come nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth and just in case you think Paul forgot something he says nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ all that God does in the believer's life is undergirded and sustained by his inseparable love for us. It's indissoluble, his permanent, binding love. Have you seen his love tonight? If not, then keep gazing. Anything or anyone that attempts to rise up in opposition against you, hear this, is outmatched by the person and love of God. Paul was convinced, verse 38, he was certain, persuaded, and confident. Of this reality. So I ask. Are you? Are you confident? Are you? Do you have a rootedness and groundedness. In the love of God. That keeps you firmly rooted in Christ. 
well, to leave us with some application, two quick points. Pray, brother and sister, pray for an increasing awareness of his inseparable love. This is Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. Pray, as Paul did, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you would be rooted and grounded in love, that you would be able to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and height and length and depth, to know the love of Christ. Pray that. Read 1 John over and over and over again until your heart is enraptured into his love for you. And secondly, don't lose heart. 2 Corinthians 4, 16, 17. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. And then hear the words of Jesus towards the end of his life with his disciples as he was teaching them in John chapter 16, verse 33. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, take heart. I have overcome the world. What a grace from the Lord that he would give to us, Romans 8. For the encouragement of your, our weary, battered soul, for the building up of your most holy faith. Beloved, God loves you, and he has communicated how much he loves you through his love letter, wherein you are to read and mind the depths of his love for you in Christ as you look unto Jesus. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for this truth. May we never get away from the simple truth that you love us. It's amazing. And yet, how, how much and how far often we doubt your love for us because of the situations we find ourselves in continue to fix our eyes on Jesus fix our eyes on the cross where you demonstrated your love for us in the, in the greatest way and may the gazing of Christ produce in us a persevering an endearing to the end because we know we have victory over all because Christ has victory over all and in him we're secure the unchanging love of God. Thank you for this. We ask in Jesus' name. I'd like to spend the next few moments in a time of prayer thanking God for what he's done for us. Thank him for Romans 8. Thank him that he didn't spare his own son, but that he spared us. Thank him that nothing can separate us from his love. There will be a couple of microphones passing around, but I want to spend a few moments expressing to God, letting your heart just vent out in praise to him.